focused on you because our text is Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14, but we're actually going to spend very little time in Ephesians 1. We're going to be all over our New Testaments this morning, and, uh, and I'm going to try and build a case for you and answer some questions that arose from last week's sermon and, and engage with you and have you engage with the scriptures, but let's go ahead and, and just read this. We're talking about the sealing of the Spirit. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us and that you would show us yourself in your word and that you would show us ourselves in your word. We confess and believe what the Bible says about itself, that when the people of God are gathered in the house of God on the Lord's day, and the man whom God has appointed stands up and preaches the word of God, that your word goes forth and does things. It's powerful, and in that moment, the Holy Spirit enters into the equation and ministers to different hearts in different ways in the room, and perhaps even over the internet. And so we just ask, O oh Lord, that you would do whatever you have purposed to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've had uh, five or six interesting conversations with uh, folks from Tabernacle this past week on this issue that we brought up two weeks ago of the sealing of the Holy Spirit and what that means and what it doesn't mean. And I think it's good. These have all been good conversations. They've been They've been encouraging and helpful conversations. It means you're listening to me, which is nice to know, and I appreciate that. Now, I mentioned last week that this issue of a single, definitive, powerful work of the Spirit after being born again, after conversion, is and has been for a while now an issue of some debate and even controversy in the evangelical church. And as I've said before, I think that's unfortunate and perhaps unnecessary, and we might get a good gauge of whether I'm correct or not about that today because I'm either going to annoy both sides of the debate or I'm going to provide uh, something that both sides find helpful because I'm going to assert that both sides are right on one point and yet they are wrong on another. So let's start with a few preliminary issues and then let's dive into the deep end of the pool together in the scriptures. First of all, when we talk about the sealing of the Holy Spirit or when we use another term that I'm going to introduce in a minute, we do not mean, hear this clearly, we do not mean that the Holy Spirit was not present and was not working in the person's life before this sealing takes place. There is no such thing as a born-again Christian 
who does not have the Spirit of God indwelling them and working in them at some level. And we can quote many scriptures, and in the interest of brevity today, because we've got communion and because we've had a missionary speaker, I'm not going to read them to you, but you can write them down. Romans 8, and uh, chapter 8 and verse 9 shows us this. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, and 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. They all show us that the Spirit of God has to be operative in a life in order to come to saving faith in Christ Jesus. So let's just follow one apostle's spiritual journey from the Bible. Now, one of the things that the Bible says, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, right? I don't mean they can't mouth the words, any crook can mouth the words, but they can't believe savingly on the Lordship of Jesus except by the Holy Spirit. So Peter, we're going we're gonna to look at just the, the journey of Peter through the scriptures here. Peter begins following the Lord Jesus at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. He was one of the first disciples to be called right after Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And in Luke chapter 5, we have the story of Peter's call by Jesus into a discipleship relationship with Jesus. And in this story, Jesus has borrowed Peter and his boat. Peter's been fishing all night, didn't catch anything, cleaned his nets, and put them back, and it's a big job. And, and Jesus says, hey, I need to use your boat. We've got a crowd here. And, and Jesus wants to take advantage of the natural effect of amplification by being on the water and speaking to the crowd on the land. And if you spend much time around lakes, you know that you can hear people out on the water very often uh, in a remarkable way because the, the sound just carries. So that's what Jesus does. He's using this as a, a natural pulpit microphone. And after the sermon is over, and you've got to think that Peter was just dog tired. He'd been awake all night. After the sermon's over, Jesus decides to pay Peter for his boat. And he says to Peter, let your nets over the side. And, um, and you'll catch some fish. And Peter looks at him and, and says, Lord, I've been at this a long time. I know fish. And uh, we fished all night and didn't catch anything. There's not anything here. But if you say so, I'll get these clean nets dirty again and clean them all over again before I go to bed. And he lets the net down into the water. And he catches such a massive catch of fish that the nets start to break. And then he's trying to pull this net into the boat and there's so many fish that the boat starts to sink and he has to call for help. And so James and John run over with their boat and help him bring this massive haul in and Jesus is just sitting there, smiling. And Peter looks at him and realizes there's something different about him. And he falls on his knees and he says, depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And Jesus says, from now on, you're going to come and follow me and you're going to fish for men. So in that moment when he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, he comes to a recognition of his own sinfulness. There's a repentance there, a recognition of his damnability. And he says, Lord. And Peter is in that moment saved. 
No one can call Jesus his Lord except by the Spirit. And he calls Jesus Lord. He confesses his sinfulness and his unworthiness. And he responds to the call of Jesus on his life by placing his confidence in Jesus and by following him as his disciple. And that's when Peter's converted. That's when Peter's born again. Now, if you fast forward to about the middle of Jesus' earthly ministry, we're going to see another event. I'm going to ask you to now to open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. I'm assuming you know where Matthew is. It's the first gospel. Matthew chapter 16 and verses 13 through 18. Matthew 16, 13 through 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, how did the Father reveal this information to Peter? How did he reveal the information about who Christ is to Peter? Well, it must have been by the Holy Spirit. Because the Father only spoke once in Peter's hearing directly from the heavens at the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and in that moment he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. But that didn't happen until the next chapter in the book of Matthew. So it happened after this. So Peter had this information given to him by the Father, and it must have been through the indwelling Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28, Jesus says that he himself casts out demons by the Spirit of God. And we know from the scriptures that Peter cast out demons in during, his, during Jesus' earthly ministry. That's evidence of the Spirit in Jesus' life. Now, let's fast forward to the Gospel of John, and we're moving forward in the story of Peter's life to the end of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry and his resurrection. And in John chapter 20, which I goofed up in the call to worship and actually neglected to put in the one verse that was the important verse, but we're gonna remedy that now. John chapter 20 and verse 19. Now, just to set the scene, Jesus has crucified, died, he was buried, he's been resurrected. Mary Magdalene has now seen him in the garden, and um, the disciples are kind of wondering what's going on here. And in uh, chapter 20, they're locked in the upper room for fear of the Jews, and we pick it up in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. So this is Easter Sunday, the evening. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So once again, we have very clearly an impartation of the Spirit, and though it doesn't explicitly say this in the passage, when you compare it with the other three Gospels, it's clear that Peter is there in the room, and so Peter again receives a measure of the Holy Spirit, a measure of the Holy Spirit's presence and power. Now, this happens, you'll notice, as I said before, on the evening of the first Easter Sunday, but the Holy Spirit was not done with them, was he? He had more of himself to give. And the risen Jesus told the disciples why. Turn to Luke now, and we're going to explore the same parallel passage in Luke. Luke chapter 24. Verse 44. This is the, the same event just told by the Gospel of Luke, and we get things left out and we get other things introduced. He's in the upper room with them, and he spoke to them and said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then watch what he does here. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the same event, as I said, that's described in the book of John where Jesus breathes on them and gives them a measure of the Holy Spirit. It says in Luke that he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures, and we know that you don't really understand the scriptures without the aid of the Holy Spirit. So I think when Jesus breathed on them, that what he was doing was giving them a supernatural ability to understand the scriptures. And Jesus says, I have a task for you after this. Repentance and forgiveness of sins are to be declared to the nations, and you are going to be my witnesses. And the word in Greek is martyrs. You're going to be my martyrs. And you're not up to the task. You are too weak. You're hiding in a room behind locked doors because you're afraid of your own people. You need something more. You're not up to the task yet. And I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Now we see that they've been given some measure of strengthening in this impartation of the Spirit because after that, we're told that they're continually in the temple worshiping Jesus with great joy. And the last verse in the book of Luke says clearly, this last little paragraph in Luke where it says the ascension, we didn't read it, is a, a, a condensation of 40 days 
of Jesus' ministry and his resurrection body, where he hung out on earth with the disciples for 40 days. And so there was a lot going on there, but they were filled with joy and they were, they were all of a sudden, they were much more out in the open. They weren't hiding anymore, so they'd gotten some strengthening. But do you get the picture? These men have received the Holy Spirit's gift and power, first of all, to believe savingly on the Lord Jesus, second of all, to understand the scriptures and how the Old Testament scriptures, because there were no New Testament scriptures then, how the Old Testament scriptures spoke of Jesus and how to use those scriptures in preaching about Jesus. They were given special ability. But Jesus himself says, you're still lacking something. You're lacking power. They're saved, but they're weak. They are not yet strong. And what is the solution to their weakness? What is the solution? Notice that it is not the impartation of doctrinal knowledge. Jesus did impart doctrinal knowledge to them during that 40 days that he walked on earth and actually in the whole three years before. That was critical. They needed that. That's why he had to open their minds so they could understand the scriptures. But that wasn't sufficient, was it? Notice Jesus didn't say, you need to spend a lot of time in spiritual formation and development and sanctification. You've got to have this long period where you grow slowly in holiness. No, he didn't say that. What was the solution to their problem? The solution to their problem was to be clothed with power from on high. And what the disciples needed was a subsequent moment in time infusion of the Holy Spirit's presence and power that would immediately equip them to be able to do what they needed to be able to do in order to fulfill the task that Jesus was giving them. And if you think about that task, it is an awesome one. They were going to have to be able to speak the gospel clearly and boldly to uneducated and educated people alike. They would have to be examples of purity and holiness, of God's transforming power in their speech, in their conduct of life. They had to show evidence that, that what God was doing in the world through the impartation of the gospel had made a difference in their lives. They would have to fear God so much that they did not fear any man or what any man could do to them. They would, not, they, would, they would have to understand, rather, complex, interrelated theological ideas in order to discern when Satan was attempting to introduce error or heresy into the church. And they would have to have great wisdom. They also would require a great deal of physical and mental stamina and the ability to persevere and endure much hardship to manage the stress of just administering large organizations spread all over the world in a time of slow communication. And they would have to be men of great prayer. Now think about what you know from the scriptures, if you know the scriptures, about Peter, again, prior to this point. Did Peter have those qualities? Peter had very few of those qualities. I would actually argue that Peter had none of those qualities at all. Even the physical stamina, as strong as he was, you know, when Jesus was like, can you, can you wait with me and pray for me while we're in this garden? And they're like, oh, sure, and they fall asleep. 
And he goes and he wakes him up. He's like, guys, I need your help. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he falls asleep. He didn't have the stamina he needed. Jesus said, you need those things. Wait. Wait and tarry in Jerusalem and you will get them. Now turn to Acts chapter 1 and verses 1 through 9. And we see the moment when this happens. Acts 1, 1 through 9. We're going to read the introduction. Now, if you don't know, the, the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke also wrote Acts. And so he's introducing himself again. In the first book, O Theophilus, that's the Gospel of Luke, and he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come down in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Now notice what Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do for them. You will receive power. And notice what Jesus calls this event. He calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's in Acts chapter one five. He also describes it as the Holy Spirit coming upon you. Now, I'm gonna show you a little bit later that the scripture uses several different terms to describe this same type of event. And so let's look at what happened. Turn to Acts two. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven and at the sound at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and said, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, what was the sign that the Holy Spirit had indeed baptized them? Well, there were 
several signs. First of all, there was tongues of fire resting upon each one of them. That's unique, but it's exactly what Jesus foretold. Jesus said he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Secondly, there were tongues, speaking in other tongues. And the third thing that happened was a very visible and noticeable transformation of the disciples into people who were filled with power. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people are saved. This whole crowd that showed up to see what's going on here. We're hearing the gospel. We're hearing the mighty works of God in our own native language that these people obviously haven't studied. There's something going on here. And Peter stands up and he says, this is what's happening. And he gives a sermon right there without writing it out. And 3,000 people are saved. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are dragged before the Jewish high council, the Supreme Court. And Peter, who just a few weeks before was terrified to confess to even knowing Jesus, and he was terrified by, of all people, a servant girl, he denied him three times instead. This same Peter spoke boldly to these powerful and malicious men. And he paid no attention to their threats. And he astonished them with his ability to speak and to argue. And they recognized that he had been with Jesus precisely because of his ability to speak even though he was an unlearned man. When Ananias and Sapphira lied about the amount of money they sold their land for, Peter pronounced an apostolic death sentence on them. And the Spirit of God struck both of them down for lying. Peter, after Pentecost, was far different than Peter before Pentecost. And it wasn't gradual. It was sudden. And it came when the Holy Spirit came upon him with power. Now, let's just pause for a minute and take up this issue of tongues very briefly. I will try to unfold this in a more fulsome way later on. But the first thing that I want you to notice is that the tongues that they spoke in in Acts 2 were other human languages. And they were specifically other human languages which the disciples did not have any natural knowledge of. And we have a rough translation or interpretation of what, the, what they were saying. It says in Acts 2.11 that they spoke of the mighty works of God. Now you can search the whole New Testament from cover to cover and you will find no evidence of anyone speaking in tongues in any other way than a human language. Now, why did God choose this particular manifestation of his power at this time in this way? Well, Recall that before Jesus came, God's saving work in the world was concentrated on the Jews. If you wanted to go to heaven, if you wanted to worship God, you had to join yourself to the Jewish people. And in Jesus, God's saving work begins to go out to all the nations of the earth. Formerly, it was almost exclusive to the Jews, but now it's going forth. Now it's going out. And and. What God is aiming at is what John the, uh, the Revelator saw in his vision in heaven in the book of Revelation. John describes a multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, language, 
and tongue. Every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. Now, if you're going to take the gospel to Japan, what's the first thing that you need to do? You need to learn Japanese. If you're going to take the gospel to Brazil, you have to learn Portuguese. If you're going to go and win souls in El Salvador, you need to learn the Spanish tongue. The gifts of tongues in the New Testament are a visual, symbolic way of saying, look out, nations, look out. Jesus is coming, and he's coming to bring the free offer of salvation to a neighborhood near you. And you too can be incorporated into the people of God and become an heir to the promises made to Abraham and his offspring. Not only that, the whole reason there was ever a diversity of languages in the world at all is because of God's curse. Remember, back in Genesis chapter six, the world um, is, after the flood, the world has become filled with human beings again. And they're numerous on the earth. And they're, they're, most of them live in great rebellion against God. And they sought to build themselves a great high tower. And they said, this is going to be so that we can make a name for ourselves. But it was also so that they could escape any future flooding, thinking that they could safely rebel then against God and avoid judgment. So we'll just build us a tower, and you can flood the world again, God, and we'll just all go up in our tower and wait you out. We're going to be safe. You can't touch us, neener, neener, neener. And what did God do? God came and he confused their speech so that they could not cooperatively rebel against him. And then he scattered them over the face of the earth. In calling his elect from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue, and in uniting them to him and to one another in the church, he is enabling them to cooperatively serve him. In other words, he is reversing the curse. So that's why the gift of tongues. Now, here's another interesting fact. This sign is only mentioned two other times in the book of Acts. And both times it's given, it's given in response to a situation in which an ethnic group who was not formerly known to be part of the people of God is brought to Jesus. In other words, it's given as an answer to the question, Lord, are these kind of people included in your plan? And it's given more to assure the church that that's what's happening and that it's okay than it is to particularly edify the person who is speaking in tongues. And so in Acts chapter 10, we have the story of Peter going to a man who lived in Caesarea Philippi, which was in Samaria. And you recall Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So there's this concentric circles. And so now we're, we've gone to Jerusalem and Judea. We've gone to Samaria because we're in Samaria now. But we're not going to Samaritans because they're kind of half-breed Jews. We could see God working with them. No. He goes to an Italian. Your ancestors, some of you. A Roman centurion from the Italian cohort. This is a man named Cornelius. He fears God and he loves the Jews. And an angel comes to him and says, I want you to send for a guy in the city of Joppa, a few miles away, named Peter. And he told him where to go. And at the same time, the angel's giving this vision to Cornelius. Peter is up on the roof praying, and he has a vision. And the vision is that this sheet is lowered down, and it's got all kinds of stuff that Jews weren't supposed to eat, uh, pork chops and shrimp and whatever else. And, and God says, 
rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, no, I'm not going to do that. That's gross. That's not kosher, literally. And, and God says, don't call anything unclean that I've called clean. And, and, and then he says, there's a guy about to knock on the door. Go with him. And then there's a knock on the door. And Peter goes with him. And he takes six other Jews who've been converted to Christ with him. And he goes to this house of this man named Cornelius. And Cornelius says, please tell me about Jesus. And Peter does. And while he's still preaching his sermon, the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles as, uh, they had, as he had on, on the, the Jews in Jerusalem, and they began to speak in tongues. And everybody who's Jewish who's in the room is like, okay, I did not see that one coming. And Peter says, can anyone forbid water baptism to these people who received the Holy Spirit exactly like we did? And the answer is no. It's pretty obvious God wants to do this. And so Peter does it, and he stays several days instructing him. And then he goes back to Jerusalem, and he's telling people, hey, you'll never guess what happened. Italians can be in. Aren't you glad Italians can be in? And when Peter goes back to Jerusalem, there's this group of Jewish Christians known as the Circumcision Party who were kind of like the, the self-appointed theology cops. And they start giving him a hard time. You went into the house of an uncircumcised man. You ate with an uncircumcised man. What in the heck are you doing, Peter? And Peter says, wait, let me tell you what happened. God took me there. And while I'm speaking the gospel, the same thing happened to them that happened to us. And so we concluded that God was in this. And even the circumcision party people were like, okay, that's pretty hard to explain any other way. I guess we'll let this one go. And they rejoiced. Now, when you think about it, you can see what their assumption was, right? You, 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 you ask yourself, why were they so surprised by this? I mean, Jesus said, hey, I'm going to be sending you to the ends of the earth. And they thought that meant, well, we're going to be sent to the ends of the earth to tell the Jews who live in those places about Jesus. They still didn't get the whole Gentile thing. And it was hard for a lot of them to swallow for a long time. And actually the first Presbytery meeting, the first General Assembly of the church was on this issue. The only other place in Acts where tongues appears is in Acts 19, which we, which we explored a, a number of months ago, when Paul's in Ephesus and he meets these disciples who only know the baptism of John. And he proclaims the Jesus who John pointed to, and they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then they too receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues and prophesy. So they're included. More accurately, I think what's going on there is that any disciples of John who hadn't come to Jesus are now known to be excluded. In other words, continuing to be a disciple of John will not save you. You have to come to Jesus, who John spoke of. And apparently, there were quite a few of these guys running around because in the passage right before, we're introduced to a man named Apollos who was mighty in the word, but he only knew the baptism of John. And he had to be instructed by Priscilla and Aquila. Now, the only other place in the New Testament where tongues is mentioned is in 1 Corinthians, which is one of the earliest letters of Paul, where Paul asserts that first of all, it is a gift of the Spirit, but it's not particularly a valuable one, and it certainly isn't as valuable as you Corinthians think it is, because you're making it an occasion of pride, but when we compare it to the other gifts, it's actually not that, there are other more valuable gifts for the church. 
And he clearly says that it isn't a gift for every Christian. Other Christians have other gifts by the same Spirit. And then it's not mentioned again in the New Testament. Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 13, where there are tongues, they will cease. That's what he says. Now, the early church fathers who lived and died between 100 and 200 AD, we have some of their writings, and they mention something that possibly could be construed as tongues, but it's only in connection with a heretical group called the Montanists. And by the time of the late 300s and early 400s, you have St. Augustine writing that this was a special gift for that time and place and that it had long since ceased in the church. And you have St. John Chrysostom writing just a little before him and writing on the book of 1 Corinthians and saying, we really don't know what to do with this tongues thing because it ceased so long ago that nobody has any experience with it and it's kind of lapsed into obscurity. So it's very clear that in the early church, by the, by the close of the first century, that gift ceased. And it stayed in obscurity until 1906 or thereabouts. And it was popularized by something called the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 in Los Angeles, California. Only now, instead of a known human language, it was something completely unintelligible to anyone except someone who supposedly had the gift of interpretation. And we are told by the practitioners that tongues plus interpretation is functionally the gift of prophecy. And so if somebody can say something that nobody understands and then somebody can supposedly interpret something that nobody understands, then we should do what they're telling us to do because that's the gift of prophecy. We're told that every Christian can and should speak in tongues, which is contrary to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 28 through 30. Some have even said that you are not saved if you haven't spoken in tongues. And most of all, we are told that the baptism of the Holy Spirit always results in tongues, which has led many Christians to flee any notion of the baptism of the Spirit because they don't want anything to do with the modern tongues movement. Now, I want to say two or three things in closing because our time is gone and we'll take these things up again next Sunday if God spares us. Number one, I do not wish to disrespect anyone who sincerely believes that they have experienced this phenomenon. But I am very, very skeptical. I don't see any biblical warrant for a private, ecstatic, secret prayer language. I just don't. It's not there. But I have seen lots and lots of fraud and error and heresy and chicanery from the segment of the church that is most often identified with these things. If you can proclaim to me the mighty works of God in perfect Hindi or Lakota or Arabic without ever having studied those languages, I will be happy to hear what else you have to say. And I will listen with an open mind and an open heart. Otherwise, I reserve the right to remain skeptical. Friendly, I hope, but skeptical. Second, I wish to unlink two ideas that got linked in 1906. Tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit are two separate issues. 
Even in the book of Acts and even in the book of 1 Corinthians, they are two separate issues. You don't need to be afraid of the baptism of the Holy Spirit because of some things that have been taught by others. Thirdly, the scriptures describe in several places an experience of the Holy Spirit which radically impacts the life of the person who experiences it. It's called by different names. It's called being clothed with the Spirit in Luke 24. It's called the pouring out of the Spirit in Acts 2. It's called the baptism of the Spirit in Acts 2. It's referred to uh, uh, as the Holy Spirit falling upon someone or coming upon someone or in one passage, receiving the Holy Spirit. This event is different than that activity of the Spirit that operates on a person to bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it happens at some point in time after they believe. Maybe very soon after, but sometimes there's a gap. I don't think there's any question, but that another name for this is the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which Paul mentions in Ephesians 1 and verse 13. I think they're all different kind of terms to describe this same phenomenon. And lastly, when we pick up on this next week, right out of the gate, what happens in a genuine revival, such as what we want, it always starts first with people who are converted. They're really disciples of Christ. They're really saved. But they're very weak. They're not very effective. The church has begun to rely on programs. Now, there's nothing wrong with programs as long as the Holy Spirit is at work. But programs are not a substitute for the Holy Spirit. The church begins to rely on techniques that I think are utterly unnecessary. And these weak and fleshly Christians in the church who are saved, but I'm going to argue who are not sealed, are not very effective. And then the Spirit comes. And all of a sudden, like some of you may remember like back in the 80s, you remember the diesel pickups back in the 80s? Weren't they the most pathetic things ever? I mean, you could, you know, accelerate all day and maybe get to 40 miles an hour, right? And then sometime in the mid-90s, started with Cummins, and then General Motors did it with a really bad diesel, and then Ford finally did it with a really good one, they added something. What did they add, guys? Turbos. Turbos, that's right. And all of a sudden, that diesel engine, which was a dog before, woke right up. And then they started figuring out how to make the turbos more effective. Now, I owned a 7.3 with a, 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 a turbo, the power stroke, and I was pulling a, a trailer full of cows up in the hills, with 18 cows in the back of this trailer. And, uh, and uh, I overheated the transmission, and so we finished the job up with a Dodge with a, a six-speed in it. And I got to pull that Dodge all the way up into this meadow in the middle of the Black Hills. Oh, my gosh, that thing walked all over my Ford. And I said to myself, I got to get me one of these <laughs> because it was amazingly powerful. The trucks worked before in the 80s. They just didn't work that well. And along comes banks, and they bolt a turbo on, and you're like, whoo, that made a difference. 
That's exactly what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and seals you, baptizes you, falls upon you. It's like, whoop, hey, that made a difference. And everybody can see. All you got to do is be at a red light next to them and they can see the difference. Because God wakes you up. And immediately then, unbelievers within the church, the baptized reprobates in the church who are not saved, all of a sudden they start going, whoa, whoa I need something, something's happened. And they get saved. And they get filled. And then the unbelievers out there start going, what is happening in there? And they start wandering in. Now, I'm going to tell you some stories next week from, from several revivals that talk about just exactly that phenomenon. And what happens is the Spirit is poured out on this weak and fleshly church and things happen that make an immediate difference. They're God-sized things. This, I believe, is the only hope for the continuance of the evangelical church in North America and Europe, for the church in the West. We have to have revival or we will die. We are dying. Look at the numbers, shrinking. And if we're gonna be around to pass the faith onto our grandchildren, it's gonna have to be that the Holy Spirit comes in revival and something happens to us. God bolts a turbo onto your tired diesel rear end. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I don't know what happened there, but man, there's power. Heavenly Father, if I have spoken anything amiss, please forgive me and cause it to be forgotten. If I have said anything that's useful and helpful, please burn it into our minds, burn it into our hearts. Help us, O oh Lord. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. If I could have the elders come forward, we're going to have proper communion also for the first time in a year.